0: environmental,
1: conversations,
0: on creative
2: arts, scholarship, and teaching.
0: This, this is, is ECOCAST.
1: Cast. Hello and welcome to ECOCAST, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Brandon Golm. This month is sort of a solo episode, but really it's just me introducing the various guests that we have. Each guest in this episode recorded with me during the Asley slash AESS conference in Portland this summer. As always, if you have an idea for an episode, reach out to us via Twitter. We're at asley underscore EcoCast. That also has a link to our link tree and email info for submitting proposals. You can also email us directly at asley.ecocast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Ecocast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Now let's get into the guests. First up, I was joined by Rajendra Pond, who discussed his book, Man, Nature, and Wildlife, depicted in the jungle literature of Jim Corbett and Kenneth Anderson.
0: Good morning, Brandon. I'm very happy to be here in the ASLN ESS conference. Biennial conference organized by ASLE and ASS on environment. I am very um, glad to share with you about my research work and my two books, in fact three books, Man, Nature and Wildlife, depicted in the jungle literature of Jim Corbett and Kenneth Anderson. See uh, I have written this book after my research work and I have analyzed the jungle stories Shikar stories of both these writers. Both these writers shot into fame. They are famous, especially uh, Jim Corbett's two books are regarded as considered as the uh, they are classified into world's classics, Man-Eaters of Kumau and the Tree Tops. And Kenneth Anderson is equally popular in all corners of the world. So both the writers, they stayed, they lived their lives in India. Jim Carbet was Irish uh, descendant and um, Kenneth Anderson belonged to Scottish family and both they spent their life. The common trait, common characteristic of these writers was love of nature and wildlife. So they both loved uh, the thick forests in India, biodiversity of India and particularly tigers. And they have written fascinating, interesting and sensational stories on chasing and hunting tigers in the 19th century and 21st, 20th century. Jim Corbett's stories cover the period of mid 19th century, while Carbett's, uh, Anderson's stories, they cover um, the incidents, events that occurred in the jungles of southern India, that is. Uh, south part of India uh, in the middle of 20th century and uh, they became popular as a hunting uh, hunter storytellers. But unfortunately they were misunderstood because their main intention Jim Corbett and Kenneth Anderson both have uh, transformed themselves from hunter to um, ecologist, conservationist And this transformation, Metamorphosis is reflected in the stories of Jim Carvet and Kenneth Anderson. We can see that uh, in those days, that means 200 years before, India is always famous for tiger population. India is known as land of tigers. But during the colonial period, imperial period, uh, tigers were killed, they were slaughtered by the hunters for entertainment. And as a result of that, their population declined drastically. And at the beginning of the 21st century, there was hardly there were hardly 5,000 tigers left. So what we see, both the writers are popular. But unfortunately, they are chasing and hunting of man-eaters. I want to tell you here that uh, again there is uh, some difference in the stories of Carbet and Anderson. Because Carbet belongs to early period. And his stories are from northern India. That is uh, mountain ranges, Himalayan mountain ranges. And Anderson's period, his latter period, that is in the mid of the 21st century. And uh, we find that later on cultivation, uh, deforestation caused the tigers to come to the urban area. Uh, The tigers, they went outside the jungle and they became uh, eaters. In fact, they had uh, there was shortage of prey, prey animals, and as a result of, of that, they had to move towards in search of prey, and man beast conflict, human wildlife uh, uh, conflict increased in latter part of twentieth century, and this is clearly uh, displayed in the depicted in the stories of Kenneth Anderson, and therefore he criticizes. Uh, human beings he criticizes so-called development and he says that the so-called development so-called um, uh, development is responsible for the depleting uh, condition uh, population of the tigers and uh, they have written stories on other uh, matters also other topics also other subjects also for example Jim Carbet's other three books My India, jungle lore and the treetops if we take example of um, My India it is Book on the tribal life tribal people in India from the Himalayan ranges mountain ranges. They live very simple uh, But contented, happy satisfactory life Their life is very hard they face hardships their life uh, is not uh, supported by modern technology but they were very happy in the company of nature and this is emphasized by Jim Carbet in his book My India there are character sketches of his friends who accompanied him in the nature in the jungle and while he was on expedition of tiger hunting man uh, expedition similarly um, Anderson's books also reveals tribal life. His few books uh, comments on the tribal people in that southern part of India. Chenchus, Airilas, Pujaris. These are the tribes. They live in the forest. They live in the jungles. But their life is um, full of hardships. They have to struggle every day for survival. But at the end of the life, at the end of the day, they are contented, as compared to people from urban areas, city people. And therefore, I feel that Jim Carbett and Kenneth Anderson, they are not only hunters, they are conservationists, as well as they have written on tribal life, wildlife and some discoveries from Jim Carbett's book, we can uh, uh, accept as scientific. Though he was not scientist, though he was not ecologist, by nature he has conveyed, he has depicted, he has uh, made propaganda that we have to, Uh, take care of the wild animals because man should live in company of nature wild life which is beneficial for both animals as well as human beings other book jungle lore is his autobiography, Carbet's autobiography in which he says that book of nature has no beginning and no end so friends this is true fact that book of nature has no beginning and no end and both the writers, they say that they have got enough source of joy from the jungle life when they were in living in the nature. So, their stories are very interesting and I am glad that I am here as a participant speaker and I am going to present my book, Man, Nature and Wildlife in the ASLE Biennial Conference in the next three days. Thank you. Thanks for giving me this opportunity.
1: All right, and the next person to share is Lori Deprete brown from University of Wisconsin-Madison.
3: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. My name is Lori Dupreet-Brown, and I'm from the University of Wisconsin, uh, 4W Women in Translation Collective. And I'm going to be sharing um, some translations and some thoughts about translations from a recent book called Montañas and Three or Four Rios. It's a bilingual anthology that is linked with the City and Nature Prize of Jose Emilio Pacheco, and this is done in collaboration with the Museum of Environmental Sciences at the University of Guadalajara and the University of Guadalajara Press, and with my dear and cherished co-coordinator, Professor Sarley Mercado, without whom this project um, would not have happened. So I'm here at the Asli conference in Portland, which I highly recommend to lovers of the word, and I'm going to speak about the gift of collective translation, and then I'm going to share a bilingual poem called City, or Ciudad, by Jorge Galán. So, what is um, collective translation? Well, collective translation, simply put, it's a shared iterative process of reading, expressing ideas in another language, and then revising together among a circle of bilingual readers. And it brings together people who know the places and subjects of the text through their lived experiences, as well as those who are engaging for the first time through the text. Those insider and outsider perspectives both tell us so much about what, you know, reality is. All these ways of knowings are desired. Um, Poets and you know scientists come together but the main requirement for one of these circles is delight in the process of revision and a passion for detailed reflection and reverence i would say for deep collective reading and the kind of reading that spawns new ways of seeing words and meanings and the music of language itself so we didn't really um invent collective translation, and we don't presume to be the um, authoritative definers of it, but we just found ourselves doing it by necessity, because we felt like it was the only way we could really make the beautiful, true, and important literary works that were expressed in Spanish available to an English readership. And this is a gift to the writers, but also, and especially, to the readers, because the readers can't really acknowledge the wisdom um, from this work without, you know, accessing the poetry. And we had all, everybody in the circle, had lived in translation in one way or another, living in another place or or having migrated from one to another. And our reading and rereadings, tea, wine, and words... In that circle made us realize that everyone is really living in translation and that coming together to read and reflect and translate literature can maybe lessen the distance between our human experiences and the words that we use to express them. Translation in some ways was a balm for the loneliness and the inevitable kind of separation um, and, and makes you aware and reverent about the space between that really um, can't be expressed. So could this translation be done more quickly or better by Google Translate or AI or all these new things now? That's a good question. An experienced translator or a poet, or maybe somebody would have all these tools together, you know, maybe. But that process couldn't possibly engender the same kind of intimate shared reading or deep understanding of a poem Or even just that feeling that we've sort of magically or miraculously touched ground with the poem and at the same time that we've only barely touched it and that there have to be other other readings so this was kind of a selfish gift to ourselves in a way um, and for people who read and translate and we hope that um, it encourages you to read and translate and I'm going to just share one of our poems, and I've thought about how I'm going to share it, because I think this podcast is probably a majority of English-language readers, and so I want to say something about being an English-language listener, be a bilingual listener, or being an only Spanish listener. Um, when you speak both languages, it's very special to listen for the slight nuances and choices, and you can be a very active reader, because you're thinking about how you would say it, right? Right? But we've, and we often think that that bilingual reading is the superior one, and that's because it's linked to the academy, it's linked to knowing, it's linked to the privilege of travel. But I've, you know, kind of recently come upon um, this other thought, which is one thing that bilingual readers can't do, that um, readers who don't speak the um, origin language of any poem can do, is listen to the music of a poem and listen to its meter and rhythm, and tone without being distracted by the meanings that are associated with it. So listening to a poem, even in your own language, with someone who doesn't speak it and hearing what they hear could be very enlightening, especially if they have a poetic or musical ear. So there's so many ways um, that we can you know, bring language to a space. What I'm gonna do in this case is I'm gonna read the poem in English fully first so that those listeners who, I mean, I'm going to read it in Spanish first, pardon me, no, English first, so that those listeners, you can understand what it means, and we've worked very hard to have a musicality and a poetic sensibility to this, and then I'm going to read it in Spanish so that you can just ride the music of it, knowing what it means, without worry, and um, maybe realize that you, maybe you wish you spoke Spanish, but there's something special about your own listening as a, as a monolingual listener. And so now I am going to read the poem City by Jorge Galán, who is one of the prize winners from El Salvador. And this brings in a lot of themes of of nature. And I chose City because that that space, you know, that urban space is, is a space uh, where nature and built environments um, are relevant. You know, sometimes we just think about nature as the um, untouched nature, but there's nature everywhere and there's, you know, hunger for it everywhere. So here we are from the point of view of Jorge Golan in a poem called City. City. The stone grew like a tree and then a bit more. It grew up in a day or two, defied the sky and kept growing, reached ten, one hundred meters in a single day and then bent down until it became a dome full of protuberances. It was like the armor of an animal. And maybe it was really an animal that engulfed us in our sleep while we dreamed of death and were inside its stomach. At times gray, at times white, and at times gilded and bright as a huge gold nugget, we believed the stone was not one but many who had risen up together, a multitude of stones, sometimes less soft, at other times less beautiful, and some tried to climb the immense walls without success. Inside, the insects died the flowers above all light died and the scent of lanterns filled all the empty spaces every glass and every mouth and every ear filled with smoke and we were beings of smoke but we learned to live this way in the dark we painted beautiful landscapes and our beautiful beings onto the stone we painted everything we remember seeing we heard the rain falling we heard the arrival of snow we heard the bison climbing and dwelling above everything A stampede of elephants brought us down, sharp stalactites one October and another November. A huge vehicle landed on Christmas Day, and we confused reindeer footsteps with distant drums. We lit fires every morning. We breathed into the fire, our breath warmed up. We learned to see in the absence of light. We became silhouettes moving in the shadows. A world of silhouettes dawned between us. We gave each other different names. We called each other noise. We called each other loud, low. We called each other saber tooth and shadow bear and skull. Breeze was our mother and tornado our father. We thought we had a common father and mother and we were children of darkness. Our language became similar to that of the stream. Our hands became huge. Our eyes learned to turn on and off like the bodies of dragonflies. Our hair mimicked the branches of a home oak and smelled like freshly harvested wheat in the summer. We learned to tell beautiful stories about the days of light, and we spoke of the light as one speaks about dreams, as one speaks of a remote land of the past, a place in the tempest beyond the continent of fog, beyond the countries of cold. Soon we forgot how to wait, and we forgot as well the name of days. Birds that not, that Birds that only knew how not to scream were our stars. They still are, but everything is well in our house, in our shadow, where we belong. Now I'll read it in Spanish. Ciudad. La piedra creció como un árbol y un poco más. Creció en un día o dos, se enfrentó al cielo y siguió creciendo. Llegó a los diez, a los cien metros en un solo día y luego se combó, hasta convertirse en una cúpula repleta de salientes. Era como la armadura de un animal y quizás era en verdad un animal que nos engulló mientras dormíamos, mientras soñábamos la muerte y nos encontrábamos en su estómago trechos gris, atrechos blanca, atrechos dorada y brillante como una inmensa pepita de oro. Creímos que la pierda no era una sola, sino muchas que habían crecido juntas, una multitud de piedras, a veces menos blandas, otros menos hermosas. Algunos trataron de escalar sus inmensas paredes sin conseguirlo. Dentro murieron los insectos, las flores. Murió sobre todo la luz. Y una, y una aroma de lámparas llenó todos los espacios vacíos. Cada vaso y cada boca y cada oreja se llenaron de humo, y fuimos seres de humo. Pero aprendimos a vivir así, en la oscuridad. Pintamos la piedra con hermosos paisajes, hermosos seres pintamos la piedra con todo aquello que recordábamos haber visto. Escuchamos caer la lluvia, escuchamos la la llegada de la nieve, oímos un bisonte subir y habitar más arriba de todo, una estampida de elefantes hizo caer, filosofas estalitilas un octubre y otro noviembre, un enorme carro se posó de día de navidad y confundimos pisadas de reno con tambores lejanos. Encendimos fagatas cada mañana, soplamos el fuego hasta calentar nuestro aliento. Aprendimos a mirar en la falta de luz. Nos volvimos siluetas que se movían en la sombra. Un mundo de siluetas amaneció entre nosotros. Nos dimos nombres distintos, nos llamamos ruido, nos llamamos alto, bajo. Nos llamamos dientes de sable y oso, de sombra y calavera. Brisa, nuestra madre, y tonado, nuestro padre. Creímos tener un padre y una madre comunes, y fuimos los hijos de la oscuridad. Nuestro lenguaje se volvió parecido al del arroyo. Nuestras manos se volvieron enormes. Nuestros ojos aprendieron a ascenderse y apagarse como los cuerpos de las libelulas. Nuestro cabello imitó a las ramas de la encina o olía como a trigo recién segado en verano. Aprendimos a contar hermosas historias sobre los días de luz y hablábamos de la luz como se habla de los sueños, como se habla de una tierra remota del pasado, un lugar en la tempestad, Más allá del continente de niebla, más allá de los países de frío. Pronto nos olvidamos de esperar y olvidamos también el nombre de los días. Aves que, que no saben sino gritar fueron nuestras estrellas. Lo son aún, pero todo está bien en nuestra casa, en nuestra sombra, donde pertenecemos. Thank you so much for um, listening to these poems. Normally, we have a, a native speaker uh, perform each poem, but this is um, kind of a one-person show today, and I'm very grateful. I encourage you to um, look for Montañas and Rio Four Rios, and you can buy the digital version from the University of Guadalajara Press. And um, thank you so much for listening, and thank you to ASLI for making this pof- um, opportunity possible.
1: Next up is Pam Yushuk, editor in chief of Cutthroat, a journal of the arts.
4: Hi, good morning. My name is Pam Yushuk, and I am the editor in chief of Cutthroat, a journal of the arts. Some of you out there may have seen this before. We, ha- our journal, was started in 2005 by my husband William Pitt Root and myself in southwestern Colorado, and this is our latest our latest um, edition of Cutthroat, this is Cutthroat 28, and it was put together by Black Earth Institute and uh, Cutthroat, a journal of the arts. It's called Through the Ash New Leaves, and we have wonderful contributors in here, including Rita Dove, Joy Harjo, uh, Luis Alberto Llorea, Jacqueline Johnson, and, um, Patricia Spears Jones, many, many wonderful writers. We publish poetry, prose, and we run three contests a year. We're raising money for endangered species with this anthology. The anthology is $30. You can buy it on our website, which is www.cutthroatmag.com. Don't just go to Cutthroat or you're going to go to a casino and you're going to hate me. So just go to cutthroatmag.com. Um, and we are also uh, accepting submissions for our next issue beginning August the 31st. Also, our contests start then, the Joy Harjo Poetry Contest, the uh, Barry Lopez Nonfiction Contest, and the Rick DeMarinas Short Fiction Contest. Um, I'd like to just to read one little piece from this this morning. And it, let me see. Um, There are so many wonderful contributors in here, including Naomi Shihab Nye. But let me read you Joy Harjo's Speaking Tree. I had a beautiful dream. I was dancing with the tree. Sandra Cisneros. Some things on this earth are unspeakable genealogy of the broken a shy wind threading leaves after a massacre or the smell of coffee and no one there some humans say trees are not sentient beings but they do not understand poetry nor can they hear the singing of trees when they are fed by wind or water music or hear their cries of anguish when they are broken and bereft. Now I am a woman woman longing to be a tree planted in a moist, dark earth between sunrise and sunset. I cannot walk through all realms. I carry a yearning I cannot bear alone in the dark. What shall I do with all this heartache? The deepest-rooted dream of a tree is to walk even just a little ways from the place next to the doorway to the edge of the river of life and drink. I have heard trees talking long after the sun has gone down. Imagine what it would be like to dance close together in this land of water and knowledge, to drink deep what is undrinkable check us out, www.cutthroatmag.com. And I'd also like to put in a little word for my own poetry today. Uh, This is Refugee, my latest book um, in the series of eight books, actually. And this was published by Red Hen Press in 2022 and named one of the 14 best books of poetry of 2022 by Orion Magazine. I was really um, happy and privileged to, uh, to hear that. Let me read you one little poem from this. I'm an ovarian cancer survivor, and so uh, stage three ovarian cancer, and there are, there's a section of cancer poems in this book. I hope that they will help all those suffering from cancer right now. Um, let me read you one of those. I hope you're having a good day out there today. And this one is called intraperitoneal chemo. I had five months of chemo, over 20 infusions of chemo. I'm a 10-year survivor, and I'm very grateful. Before each infusion, the recipe seems placid, carefully weighed, seven and a half pounds of fluid wrung from platinum, purest of all metals, In a bag hung from the hook, liquid book of the dead, above my head. In the treatment room, there is no art, just the stern tilt of the hospital bed, a visitor's steel chair. Even the light is frugal. I remember the scorpion bite, dark as Venus blood, clear as the IV needle, a nurse stabs through the membrane of the port sewn onto my lower rib to pour toxins into my emptied womb. It always burns, multiplies thousands of bone splinters, stinging cells, murdering nerves, dulling my mind, my spine alive, a drawn bow aimed at heaven, sprouting agonies 3 stingy feathers thank you so much my name again pamela yushuk and i'm happy to be here at the asley conference in portland oregon thank you brandon
1: jessica Gigo is the next wonderful asley member who sat down with me
2: my name is jessica Gigo. i'm a poet and farmer i've got two books of Poetry—one's called Flood Patterns, and the other is called Feeding Hour—and then my memoir, A Little Bit of Land, just came out with Oregon State University Press. Um, but in the spring of 2023, I've started a podcast, and it's called Her Deepest Ecologies, and it's stemming from my Substack page, which is the same uh, name, Her Deepest Ecologies. And my goal with both the Substack page and the podcast are to meet with people from all different fields. Um, to respond to two main questions. How do we nurture the earth and how do we nurture ourselves and each other? And so in this first season, I have interviewed uh, Valerie Seagrest, who is a Muckleshoot tribal member who's done a lot of work in the Northwest on indigenous food sovereignty. I've talked with Kevin Kraft, who is a poet, um, former editor of Poetry Northwest. And he recently has been a writer in residence at Olympic National Park, basically um, the park is taking on artists to pay tribute to the glaciers as they go away. Um, So he's been working there for the last year and has a new collection of poems coming out this year. Um, My other guest is Jody Buller who runs a natural natural burial ground in Ellensburg, Washington. So talking about um, how uh, it's called um, Oconee Ranch is where the the burial ground and then it's White Eagle Preserve and looking at how they manage the burial ground and issues around um, just the legality of natural burial um, and also the moral and spiritual aspects of how you do that. And, and her work is really quite interesting. She does a lot of the um, the grave digging herself and runs a lot of the ceremony, but it also allows the families to sort of create their own ceremony around burial, um, which I thought was really interesting. And um, my last guest was Claudia Castro Luna, who was the formate, former poet laureate of Washington State and um, has done a lot of work on um, not only creating sort of public art and, and community opportunities for expression, but also who's just been a really good voice for, um, for poetry in the Northwest.
1: And finally, we have first time Asley attendee, Brandon McWilliams.
5: Um, hello, my name's Brandon McWilliams. I'm a grad student at Western Washington University. I'm working on a master's in environmental studies. Use they, them pronouns. Um, yeah, and this is my first ASLI conference, which has been a blast so far. I'm here presenting on some research frameworks, working around empirical eco criticism, um, specifically looking at the effect of reading hopeful climate fiction, which has been a really fun topic, but I definitely am sort of the odd duck in my department both as a uh, someone working in environmental humanities and working at kind of that interdisciplinary lens. So it's been really lovely to be surrounded by a lot of other folks doing similar work and who share common language and interests. Uh, and it's been kind of validating that this is indeed a, a field that I think is both really necessary and just fascinating. And yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful. I was lucky enough to be part of a workshop with uh, some of the foundational folks in the empirical eco-criticism realm. Um, and so that was really great to bounce ideas off of people that are very entrenched in that realm. Um, and then other than that, it's been, I've just been indulging all my curiosities, you know, talking about eco-games, talking about performance arts, experiential things, um, thinking about eco-horror soon, hopefully, so, yeah, it's just been a really lovely time to, to gather with people that share a share common interest, common language.
1: Do you have some recommendations for some of that hopeful climate literature?
5: Yeah, that's the question I get all the time, and I always sort of struggle to answer it. Um, the text that I'm using for my study, my experimental text, is A Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers. Um which I feel like has uh, is reasonably known, uh, it's just such a beautiful book. Uh, cannot recommend it enough. It's short, it's like a long afternoon book. feels like a warm hug. It's just it's sweet. Um, so 100% recommend that one as a starting point. And then if you want to dive deeper, I've been definitely enjoying a lot of the work that the solar punk community has started to produce. Uh, there's some really amazing short story collections focusing. On various aspects of what the journey towards or life in a more sustainable society might look like, um, and it feels like that's an area that is really poised to bloom right now. It's right; it's it's starting to blossom, which is really a, an exciting time to be hooking into a new a new genre. And one of the pieces around solar punk as a whole that excites me a lot is it's very connected not only to imagining what these worlds look like these hopeful futures but embedding it in how we are tangibly getting there and really encouraging communal action which i find very helpful for my myself my own anxieties you know it's i think it's really important to think about the implications and what this looks like but it keeps me grounded to also take action so that's been a that's been a lovely thing Uh, glass and gardens there's a, a pair of collections on solar punk stories that's been interesting and yeah just look up some solar punk and you'll find interesting people
1: thanks for listening everybody i hope you enjoyed those various voices and uh wonderful people that i got to meet at the asley conference until next time talk to you later bye